Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta, Yerdena Azband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Yuma, daf Mem Chet, page 48. So the daf is very short, but it actually has a few different topics in it. I'm going to focus here on the Ketoret, the same Ketoret that we were talking about, uh, you know, yesterday was in the Mishnah, where it's talking about how the Kohen Gadol is going to take the Ketoret in, in his hands, a measure of the amount of his hands, and then put it into the spoon. So the the Gemara then, Rav Pup in particular, starts raising what I'll call problems, right? What happens if things go wrong? By Rav Papa, what happens if the incense that's in his hand falls, right? He's taking them in his hands, full hands, and now something happens and the incense itself is scattered, right? It's gone. I don't know if it's gone. It's on the floor, let's say. What's he supposed to do? What's the halacha with regard to this incense? So the question then is, can that incense be used again? Or like the fact that it's left his hands and didn't arrive in the spoon as it was supposed to, does that make it pasul? Does it make that um, invalid? Or is and and the and the comparison there is you know the what could happen in a blemish if you're trying to slaughter an animal. And then you've disqualified it. So is that what's happened here? The instance is disqualified. Or is it like a any kind of klesharate, any of the vessels that are used in the temple service? And, and just because something falls from your hand, if it's one of the vessels and it's not broken, like you're fine to go. So what is very interesting to me here is that they don't have an answer. They say teku. And we've talked about teku before, right? But the bottom line is, Chazal at this point, meaning Papa poses the question and nobody has an answer for him which way the halacha would go, what happens if the incense would be scattered. And it's interesting to me in part because I would feel like this should not be one of the most, like I think of tekus as as such a conundrum, such a challenge, such a puzzle. And this, I would think that they would just know, you know, like it's good or it's not good. And the answer seems to be no, they did not. And perhaps we can put this into the category of it's generations later, and maybe this was something that didn't happen very often. And if they didn't have a tradition for it, then they don't—they really don't have a way to to paskin it different, you know, to to um to determine it, right? Meaning to give a definite answer because they can make the argument that it's like an animal or it's like a clay. So in any case, there's our teku. And now Rav Papa has another dilemma. Bye, Rav Papa. She shaved mahu. So what happens if? During the time that the Kohen Gadol is taking his handfuls of incense, he has a thought that would be a disqualifying thought. Meaning, let's say he plans to do something wrong with it, it's in his head, right? And then will that thought, will the improper thought about the Ketorah itself, would it invalidate the whole thing? Mi amrinan yalif melo, melo mincha, mahatam mahanya ba machshava olo. So then the question is as follows. Right. There's there are other times where we could say fill up your hands. Right. And the, because we've got a whole case and it's discussed earlier on the duff, um, filling up your hands for a korban mincha, for a kind of meal offering, where, again, the Kohen would take a handful of the grain or the flour. So do we say that just like that, just like the korban mincha, the having the incorrect thought will mess up the korban, it will invalidate it. Do we say that here, too, it's going to invalidate it? Or do we say, no, this is not really like a korban in that way. So don't so don't equate them and don't carry the details of the mincha to the ketoret. Amar le Rav Simba Ashi, 
Shimi Bar Ashi, Rav Papa. So he answers, he, Rav Papa gets an answer from Rav Shimi Bar Ashi. Tashma, Hosif Rabbi Akiva, Vaktorit Velvona, Vagachlim, Sheim Nagat Vulyom Bamiksatan, Pasal et Kulan. So Rav Shimi Bar Ashi has a proposed solution. He says, when Rabbi Akiva added the handful of fine flour and the incense, and also, in addition to the incense, also the livona, which is frankincense, and the gichalim, that's the coals. And all of these things, right, are part of this, this process, right? So when, he's, when Rabbi Akiva included them in the whole um, issue for Chazal to be talking about it, namely, what do you have to do? She'im satan, if one who has immersed himself during the day touches any of these things, meaning before it's come to sunset, before he's truly rendered pure, he's touched any of these things during that day after going to the mikvah, he nonetheless disqualifies them, pasal et kulan, then, then his status, right, the implication is that the status of um, of being not yet tahor is enough to render these items um, invalid for their purpose because that's how sacred they are. Right, that they're they're treated at least according to Rabbi Kiva then in in an extreme way, right, in an extremely positive way, let's say. So then the implications. Let's take that back to the cases of Rav Papa, to the case of Rav Papa. So what happens? You say, well, think about it this way. If you've immersed during the day. And then contact, you know, had contact with the item, and that disqualifies them, right? Just simply touching them before you've been rendered pure. Then what happens if you would, let's say, leave them over, right? Their time. That's lina. Lina means to rest, really, or to lie down. But in this case, it means to leave it over the time. That should also disqualify them. And likewise, if lina, meaning if simply just leaving it over its time, is going to disqualify them, then also thought should disqualify them. Right, meaning each level is another way that these, I would say they're very delicate, so to speak, in terms of sustaining their their um, validity without being messed with. Okay, so then, and in that way, then the incense is like the flower of the Korban Mincha, even though you theoretically could make a case that it shouldn't be. This says, no, but in it's treated in the same way when we're talking about all of these Beit HaMikdash elements um, that are particularly sensitive. And then we've got one more. By Rav Papa, So what happens if you again have a if the Kohen would have an invalidating thought during the time that he's raking the coals? Now he's a little bit further away from the actual incense itself. Right, the idea of the coals are not the mitzvah. The coals, you have to prepare the coals so that they can be hot enough so that they can actually smoke the incense. You can't do the incense without the coals. But the mitzvah is the incense, not the coals. So if you have the coals ready, right, you're raking them, you're, you know, is that considered part of the mitzvah to the degree that having an invalidating thought during the preparation for the mitzvah would in fact invalidate the whole process or not? Do we just say, well, it's the beginning it's preliminary and it's not really part of the mitzvah. And here also the answer is teku. Again, they don't know. And again, I'm going to say I find it interesting that uh, that this isn't a, a slam dunk kind of answer, that it's not something that they could look or figure out. I understand the question of the, the question of is it considered part of the mitzvah or not, right? But the fact that there isn't um, 
I don't know what, the strength of authority to be able to say, yes, this is like the mitzvah, heksha mitzvah, mitzvah, or we or 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 the opposite to say, no, it's not the mitzvah until you actually get in contact with the ketoret, anything you do, if you think in you know invalid thoughts invalidating thoughts along the way, it's not gonna mess with it. I would think that you could get away with it. And the answer is no, take we really don't know. Again, I think these, and I keep saying this over and over again, this whole thing with the teku and these scenarios of Republican staff, um, it shows the loss of the Masora. Like these all must have been questions or sort of ideas that were thought about before. And the fact that they're not really sure how to answer them, I think shows how like people just really didn't know how it was done. And it makes sense. It's not just that it's a lost Masora because it was something that was some of the Beit HaMikdash. But there only were a few people who did this. So this wasn't, you know, it's very different than discussing the halachot of Shabbat or Kashrut or many of the other things, you know, how to read the Megillah, because this was not done by a huge part of the population, right? You're basically talking about one person in each generation, right, who once a year would do these things. And so we can easily see why there would be a lot of confusion around it. Um, I'm going to move on to the next piece of Rav Papa here, which is specific inquiry about Rav Sheshes. Um, and this gets back to the left-handedness that we were talking about before that we mentioned the other day. Right? So they asked of Rav Sheshes, what happens if he does this with his um, left hand? Right? If he does which is the bringing of the blood to the Mizbeach, um, and he does this with, with it. So remember that there are basically like four avodot that happen um, with every animal. Um, and, um, you know, there's shrita, holacha, kabbalah, and zrika. So the question is, what happens with holacha? Um, and so they say, Amrilola Rav Shesha. So Rav Shesha says to them, Tinuta, right? We learn from a Mishnah, Natal etamachta, biyamino, smolo. So quoting, right, what we do on Yom Kippur, that he takes the shovel of coals, the coin guzzle in his right hand, and he takes, um, the ladle of uh, Ketoret in the left hand. So the idea being, okay, you're allowed to do some avodah in your left hand. So if you did, if you carried the blood over with your left hand from a korban, that would be okay. And again, there's, uh, so, you know, two points. This is coming up again. And second, as Anne and I, we keep repeating also, you know, using parallel texts or trying to understand daily avodah from the avodah of Yom Kippur, which was, the rarest of Oda that you would do. So now the Gemara wants to know, well, why would he bring this as a proof? The Nifshuluhu Mahad Zitznai. So they're saying, no, we have a better Mishnah for him to quote. And this is a Mishnah that talks about bringing the of the daily um, Korban Tamid. And this is, you'll find this Mishnah on, um, in Masachat Tamid on Daf Lamed Aleph. And it says, So the Kohen carries the right hind leg in his left hand with the hide, with the hide of the animal facing outward. So this is basically saying that you can carry some of the limbs specifically with your left hand. So it seems, therefore, doing the avoda with your left hand is okay. And so what the Gemara is doing here is exactly and what you and I have been talking about. We can bring a proof, not from what happens on Yom Kippur, which is sort of like the exceptional avoda. We can bring a proof from a Mishnah about daily avoda, right? So if you can carry the limbs of the korban tamid, which is brought day in and day out with your left hand. Obviously, then you could do halacha, you can carry the blood 
day in and day out with your left hand. So the Gemara says, Okay, but if you brought this Mishnah about the Korban Tami, I might have said that using the left hand, right, that saying the left hand is okay, only is when it's talking about something that's not essential to Kapara, that it's to atonement. In other words, the, the bringing up of the, the limbs of the Avarim is not something that's actually essential. Um, and so what we see here is now they are, um, you know, making a distinction about sort of different parts of the Avodot. So that we say there's sort of four primary or important Avodot that all involve the blood. Once those things have been done, the Kapara has been completed. So anything that had to do with the blood for the Korban Tamid, that was all done before you brought the limbs out. So once the limbs, so your Kapara that the Korban Tamid, the daily brings, it's done. So we're not as strict, and therefore that's why you could bring the limb with your left hand. So that's why they're saying it's not actually a good proof. Okay? Um, so therefore we say, But when we're talking about holacha, about bringing the blood to the to the altar, that is an essential part of the kapara, and therefore maybe we can't learn it from this Mishnah about the korban tamid. Kamash malan. So therefore Rav Sheshis comes to tell us that we rather, it's better to use a Mishnah about the ketoret because the ketoret we know symbolizes kapara, and if you can do that part of the avoda on Yom Kippur of the Ketoah, which symbolizes kapara, which is kapara, with your left hand, then you can do holacha, which is part of the four essential avodot, and also is required for kapara with your left hand. Now they're going to challenge this, metive, right? So now they're going to bring a brisa, zarva onen shikor or balmum. So if you have a non-kohen, an onen, right, somebody who's lost a you know a first degree relative and hasn't buried them yet or somebody is drunk, or, you know, a coin is drunk, or has a moon, um, and he does Kabbalah Halacha Zrika, right, and does any of these avodot of receiving the blood, or bringing the blood over, or throwing the blood, pasul, that wasn't a good avodot. They, they're not allowed to do those avodot. V'chein yoshe v'chein small pasul. And this Bryso also says that if a good a coin who is not any of these categories, right, wasn't a known in a or a moon, but did it either sitting or used his left hand, it's also, it's not okay. So this Brisa very explicitly says, you can't do any avoda with your left hand. And so what does the Kamara conclude to Yufta? They're not sure of what Rav Sheshes um, wanted to say. Now, then the Kamara is going to go on in the next stop. We can talk about this a little bit more tomorrow because now we're already on Memtet. Um, you know, uh, how Rav Sheshes sort of didn't know about this Brisa, basically. And how is it that he... Um, that he uh, that he didn't understand it. And so they get into a whole discussion about that, which is kind of interesting, right? Like, in other words, the assumption, and of course, Rav Shesha should have known about this price up. So how did he not know about it? But, you know, I bring this to show again that we see very often we're using the avoda of, the, of Yom Kippur to learn, you know, how the avoda in general is done, right? What the framework is. And even though it's the most unique avoda, and the second piece is, is that this whole issue of Kohanim and left-handedness is one that we see discussed in the Gemara and it's not so clear-cut. I like that they keep trying to get the left-handed guy to be okay, right? Meaning the idea, this is not, left-handedness in its potential status as a moom does not seem to be as, as blemishy as some other things that are just obviously blemishes by the standards of the Beit HaMikdash. Uh, right. I think so. Right. Well, I think that's the problem with left-handedness is that 
you know, look, we know that for many years, people were forced to write with the right hand. It really was considered to be something not good. <laughs> and, you know, so we're seeing that here on the pages of the Gemara. Right. No, I understand. I'm saying, I'm saying that as much as it was considered to be not good, right, it's not the same thing as somebody who is crippled or so again nowadays we're going to give equal rights and equal standards to everybody but in the time of the Beit Mikdash if you want to say that somebody had a move somebody had some kind of thing that was a blemish and there's all kinds of things that that nowadays we wouldn't think twice about that are considered blemishes and so I understand that it's not the same for all these things but that left-handedness itself keeps coming back as a in our discussion of like, but is that really a problem? Maybe here's a way that it wouldn't be a problem. It seems to me that there seems to be a recognition that this is using the other hand in the exact same way that you, that most people use the right hand, as opposed to somebody who, you know, truly can't walk or something like that. Right. That I would agree with you. And I think, you know, when I've heard or learned about the left-handedness with Kohanim before, I have heard people explicitly say, oh, because left-handedness is considered a move. It's very clear from these pages that's actually not the case. And people are not sure exactly what to do with the left-handed Kohen. There's examples where the left hand has to be used, right? Like in the Avodah of Yom Kippur. And so for anyone to say that, that left-handedness is considered a moom, it, it really does not reflect what we actually see on the pages of the Gemara itself. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this stop on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.